That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is uh, Alexander, Alex Zychek. Uh, Alex is a freelance journalist uh, focusing on politics, media, and the environment, a contributor to the, both The Nation and Jacobin, uh, author of the new book, Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. Uh, the website, Zychek, Z-A-I-T-C-H-I-K.com. And uh, Alex, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we've talked. Tell us about this book. It has. Uh, well, it was sort of a pandemic project. Um, I've been writing about prescription drugs and drug pricing politics for a few years. But when the pandemic struck, it was clear that that same set of issues was about to return in the context of a global public health crisis. And the last time we saw a stress test uh, of the global intellectual property regime as it applies to medicines, we had um, a rather disastrous situation um, that came to a head in Africa, which some of uh, your listeners may remember, where uh, the pharmaceutical companies were basically suing the Mandela government not to produce or import um, low-cost antiretrovirals to address the, the HIV AIDS crisis. And it was clear that unless something changed with the current system, uh, um, that was going to be reproduced in the context of therapeutics and vaccines for COVID-19. And in fact, this is what we've seen play out, which which you've talked about quite a bit. Um, so I wanted to sort of track that in real time, but also tell the story of how we got to a place where this could be allowed to happen and considered okay and normal uh, as the sort of legal regime that we've come to accept as just the way it is. So how did we get here? How did we end up? I, I know after World War II, there was a massive effort to pour uh, research money into uh, particularly infectious disease kind of drugs, you know, and a, a whole new classes of antibiotics were coming out. Um, but, uh, you know, and we have famously this enormous amount of federal funding for the development of drugs, vaccines, uh, even medical devices that comes out of the National Institutes of Health. How did it all just get turned into a giant profit mill for a small handful of companies? Well, as you know, it, it is basically a post-war story, a post-World War II story. But before that, we have a much longer history in which uh, medicines were considered an exception to the monopoly carve-out that is the patent, that is the um, invention patent, which is the one way you can have a monopoly in our society. But legally. within that exception, exactly, legally. 
But within that, there was an ethical taboo against medical monopoly that withstood the test of time well into the 20th century. And it was only during that explosion of federal research money, which you just referenced, that the companies basically said, well, we've had enough about that. And we're going to throw off this ethical stricture that has previously sort of bound us to higher um, goals than market share and uh, stock price. And you have a very intense effort to basically change uh, not only norms, uh, but also laws that gave them access to publicly financed research. And they have been very successful at both gaining access to that research on a monopoly basis and also protecting and expanding that access, which is a story that continues very much into the present day. So two thoughts come to mind. One is, how do we structurally change this? How do, how do we go back you know, and reverse some of this? But also, specifically to the, to the issue of COVID, you know, we've had uh, Lori Wallach on a number of times on the show from Global Trade Watch, you know, Public Citizens Project, promoting the idea that we should have these so-called TRIPS waivers, intellectual properties that govern vaccines, that the companies that develop these vaccines, and, and of course the Moderna one was paid for in large part by you and me with our tax dollars, that these companies should be uh, allowing manufacturers in third world countries who have the ability to manufacture vaccines but can't do it legally because of the patents, to allow them to manufacture these drugs and pay, a, uh, instead of a huge royalty to these big companies, just a very small royalty. Or in some cases, no royalty, I suppose, depending on the country. But uh, as far as I recall, all of the proposals involved some small royalty. These companies would not be harmed by this. Um, so anyhow, the, uh, two, two questions to toss to you there, Alex. Right, right. Well, the first part, what do we need to do? In very broad terms, what we need to do is relink innovation and research to actual public health needs and link reward to uh, breakthroughs that help <laughs> the largest number of people as opposed to simply monopoly ownership of uh, patents and the ability to jack up price without any government countervailing force whatsoever. Right now, the system incentivizes monopoly. It does not incentivize um, expensive research geared towards uh, making people healthier and lives longer. It's, it's a fundamentally broken system. And, and the result that we get is exactly what um, you would expect based on the incentive structure that we have. With regard to TRIPS, you're absolutely right. Suspending TRIPS, putting the vaccine and therapeutic train on different rails during the pandemic would not bankrupt anybody. In fact, there's a long history of uh, public-private collaboration uh, during crises. For example, penicillin project during World War II, the government was in the driver's seat. The government contracts to industry two, three times the cost of production, cost plus contracts, they did very well. In fact, the industry we know today is in many ways uh, a, an outgrowth of those contracts. The huge amounts of tech transfer were provided, but they did not have a monopoly in penicillin. So what you had after the war was a competitive market. You had a bunch of companies producing this stuff. They were all making money. They just weren't minting billionaires during a global pandemic, which is what you had in the last two years, which by any standards of civilization, should be unacceptable when you have vaccine uh, factories sitting idle. Yeah, yeah, you would think. So where are we at in terms of progress on this? Are there, are there champions in Congress, for example? Well, actually, even a larger question, to, to what extent is the United States an outlier in this? And then where are we at in terms of making these changes? Unfortunately, the United States is not 
an outlier anymore. It was up into the post-war period, but it has since, especially around the time of the World Trade Organization, 1980s, and eventually with the signing of, of um, the accord in 1995, has brought on the Europeans, brought on Japan, brought on Canada. A lot of these countries were very reluctant to completely abandon what used to be the ethical taboo around medical monopoly and globalize the US system, but they've since uh, come around uh, to the program and are now the, the, fully the on board. The triumph and of fact, neoliberalism. Yeah, and in fact, at the WTO, it was the Europeans who were actually behind, at least on paper, the White House position of, of backing some sort of broad waiver of uh, COVID-19 IP. Is that, is that are, are you speaking to, you know, the German resistance to the TRIPS waivers with regard to the, the Germans led it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this has been substantial. How about in the United States Congress? Is uh, if if we put this in the frame of, you know, the rise of neoliberalism in the United States. In fact, let me put this in this frame, and you can tell me if this is a crazy analogy or not. Um, you know, in the in the 1960s, you started seeing Milton Friedman and and uh, you know some of his buddies, the Mont Pelerin Society, and this whole thing that came out of that. But also people like Robert Bork, who who was actually far more influential than most people realize. Um, he's the reason why our monopoly laws were changed as radically as they were in 1983 and why yep. the Supreme Court changed their tune on, on general monopoly laws. Um, but, you know, these guys were promoting this neoliberal idea that government is always a bad force and, you know, unless it's running a military, a court or a police department and yep. and that uh, everything should be left up to the so-called free market and the you know so-called free billionaires who own that marketplace. And and that kind of got us to here. Well, now we're seeing I, I would say Joe Biden has been the first Democratic president since Lyndon Johnson who has not adopted a neoliberal position. I mean, Jimmy Carter really started this in 79 with deregulating the airline and trucking industries and whatnot. Is it possible that as neoliberalism is ex increasingly exposed as the fraud that it is? I mean, the, you know, the, the, the neoliberalism that was imposed on on the former Soviet Union, for example, is what brought us Putin, you know, in 1999. Um, is it possible that as that gets exposed that we're going to see this change in the United States? Is there a movement to change this happening in the United States Congress? There is, there are signs of progress, which is a hopeful thing um, amid the otherwise depressing uh, situation that we've seen during the pandemic. Uh, Lloyd Doggett, there's a bunch of people uh, obviously led by the Progressive Caucus, but what used to be limited to um, progressive Democrats is now bleeding into the mainstream of the party, which is very heartening. Um, and, you know, the details of that are kind of bottled up right now with Build Back Better, but there is uh, a tussle within the party to get stronger and um, more meaningful reform of, of the industry. Uh, and they realize that the stakes of not doing so are quite large. One very important point that can't be stressed enough, Tom, is that there is no free market in pharmaceuticals. Despite the industry, what it says, it's all based on government protected packet patents, right. which are extended beyond the term of what the Constitution should allow. Amen. Amen. Al Alexander Zaychek, the book is A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19. Owning the Sun is the title. Alex, thanks a lot for dropping by. Thank you, Tom. Good talking with you. Becky in Dayton, Ohio. Hey, Becky, what's on your mind today? Well, I just wanted to make a comment about China and COVID. Mm -hmm. I have a relative that lives and works in Shenzhen, and they are on total lockdown, all nine million of them. All right. Because this is, you said Shenzhen, what yeah. used to be called the, the new territories across the bay from Hong Kong? Absolutely. Yeah. And it, it all had to do with just a couple people that, that uh, came over 
from Hong Kong had COVID, and they're very careful about that. And so they they just they shut the whole place down. Everybody stays at home. Um, nobody's working. I'm not quite sure how their their grocery stores go, but there's only a few that are open. And they have to go there and stand in line once they're told, okay, this section of the city, you know, can go to this store. Right. And they stand in line and they get what they get. They get tested on the way out. They get tested on the way in. Wow. And that's... And See, that's I, I think this is going to be... This has the potential to be more disruptive to world trade than anything else that's going on right now. I mean, you know, as, as much as Ukraine is grabbing the headlines. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's going to be, it's going to make a big difference on supply chains and all that. But they don't they don't mess around with this. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. And, and as, Go ahead. As he says, you know, they they and he's gotten used to it and it's just the way it is. But, you know, they say this is what you do. And by golly, this is what you do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the, 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 the both. The, it's the two edged sword of autocracy. Becky, thanks. Thanks for the heads up on that. I appreciate the call. Terry in Tucson, Arizona, listening on KBCS's stream. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I really appreciate your show. Thank you. I just wanted to, to comment uh, here in Pima County, uh, the mask mandate expired at the end of February. But this past week, uh, I attended a book festival on the campus at the U of A, mm-hmm. uh, University of Arizona, and uh, they have kept their indoor mask policy intact because there's still significant spread here. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone I saw in attending the indoor author events uh, was masked, and uh, a good number of people were still masked outside because it was a really crowded event. Um, there's a free tram that takes people through the downtown area, and it has a mask requirement, and, mm-hmm. and I didn't see anybody not complying with that. Um, there's a couple of uh, theaters here in Tucson. One's a live theater, and the other one's kind of an indie movie theater where, you know, they have people that are members. And you have to have proof of vaccination along with masks, and this was just this last weekend. Um, now, going to stores, that's another story. Depending on where you go, it might be half and half, you know, masked, unmasked. If you go to convenience stores, there's usually no one masked, and that's been that way almost since the beginning of the pandemic. So I don't right. know what that says, but yeah. that's just kind of the way it is here. It's the, the old demographics thing. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah. One of the things that I noticed uh, this weekend when Louise and I went to the nursery here in town was that um, whereas when there was an absolute mask mandate, maybe a third of people were wearing N95 masks, real masks, genuinely effective masks, and everybody else mm-hmm. was wearing cloth masks or surgery masks. And what we saw at the, uh, at the nursery this weekend was almost everybody who was wearing a mask was wearing a genuinely effective one, a KN95 or an N95, as opposed to the yeah. old cloth mask. Are you seeing that kind of thing there, uh, Terry? I saw, I would say mostly uh, I'm seeing N95 or KN95 masks. Yeah. So, yeah, I, there's been definite, you know, and I threw my cloth ones away a long time ago and just, I yeah. have just a big old pack of KN95s. So yeah. Which tells me these are like people who are serious about it. Right. They're exactly. people who are serious about either not getting or not spreading an infection. And, and God bless them. I mean, I, you know, I get it that, you know, things are changing and this disease is going to become endemic and all that kind of thing. But, um, 
It's they, still out there, you know, and there's still reports coming out talking about, you know, people's gray matter decreasing, you know, when they yep. after they've had COVID. And, yeah. you know, I'm of the age where that's a concern to me. I, I can't afford that. So, yes, me too. I can't, careful. I can't lose any more gray matter. I, I, I you know, my dissolute, between my dissolute youth and, and uh, uh, drinking too much on airplanes because I hate to fly, even though I'm a pilot. Uh, I, I love to fly when I am a pilot, but it always frightens me when I'm in the back. Um, I I think I've destroyed way too many brain cells, so I I don't need COVID (laughs) to do it more. Terry, thank you so much for the call, and thanks for the report from uh, from Tucson. It's good to hear from you. I do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, it's it's interesting to see how this is shaking out across the country, and and I think that that's what we're going to end up with, is that we're going to find, you know, for for a while, that there's going to be some people who are concerned about COVID, who are going to continue wearing masks and practicing basic, you know, just kind of basic hygiene. And we're going to become kind of like Asia a decade ago, where when I would travel through Taiwan or through Japan or through South Korea or even parts of Thailand during flu season, you would just all the time see people wearing masks. It just became, it was kind of normal. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Congressman Mark Pocan is with us today, taking your calls. He's a member of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House, former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He's on the Appropriations, Education, and Labor Committees in the House. His website is pocan.house.gov, P-O-C-A-N. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. And Congressman, welcome back to the program. I'm curious your thoughts on President Zelensky's speech now on how the U.S. government is or should respond and uh, and generally what else is on your mind this morning before we start picking up phone calls 
Sure. Uh, well, thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Um, you know, it's a powerful speech, and, you know, we need to do more. Um, you know, watching what's happening, first of all, very impressed. The Ukrainian people have uh, done, I think, more than anyone expected in standing up to the Russians uh, and fighting for their country. And, you know, we can continue to do, I think, sanctions that can put pressure on uh, Vladimir Putin and his uh, uh, closest allies, uh, oligarch allies within the country that can help put more pressure. But also, you know, last week we got our uh, omnibus bill done, the budget that was supposed to be done on September 30th, and that was important, as well as additional aid to Ukraine. So it's, it's been pretty busy a uh, few weeks here in Congress. Yeah. The omnibus bill, the COVID relief got stripped out of that. And, you know, there's some concern. Well, the Biden administration came out and said, you know, we may not be able to continue free vaccinations for people. And, you know, worldwide programs, et cetera, are going to be a real challenge. How is Congress going to deal with that? This was taken out at the insistence well, you know, of Republicans, wasn't it? Yeah, well, the Republicans said you had to use unused COVID funds for any new COVID funding. And there was about $8 billion that they could identify. The problem is they went and found another $7 billion that was the second tranche of money that was going to 30 states, including my state of Wisconsin. And it would have cost my state $225 million in helping us get to recovery. We already had a cut once. Uh, on funding previously. So actually, I was one of the kind of the ringleaders getting uh, Democrats from those 30 states that were affected, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, uh, Florida, Washington, New Hampshire, Missouri, Ohio, and a number of other states that would have lost hundreds of millions of dollars unfairly where California, New York, and other states got their money. So we didn't like that plan. And supposedly the White House had offered our leadership multiple plans, but that was the one that our leadership took. We're still trying to get a bill done. This is important funding for COVID, but, you know, taking it unfairly away from some states when other states got all their money in one tranche, and because of a Joe Manchin amendment, 30 states got it in two tranches, you know, that wasn't unused fund. In fact, that was almost all uh, obligated across the country. Uh, we kind of had to do that, but we also have to take care of the COVID funding. Yeah, amen. Um, just to, to, to kind of close this loop on, on the situation with Ukraine, what's your sense of how how the war is going, how, how this might end, um, what uh, Putin's next step might be, and how your colleagues in Congress might be responding. I know for, you know, up until very recently, you know, the Republicans were all in with anything Vladimir Putin did. That seems to have changed substantially, but I, 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 you know, I don't have the sense of Congress like you do. I mean, you're right there. Yeah, I mean, when the Republicans went from being, you know, Putin apologists, and there's still some of them, uh, to now, you know, trying to be the toughest uh, they can be. The problem is, you know, the no-fly zone sounds easier than it is to execute because that means someone has to enforce it, which would probably be us. And that, you know, could very likely initiate what people are afraid is another world war. So, you know, there's a reason why we haven't gone to that step. But there are more things, I think, that we can continue to do. The sanctions have been strong, are putting pressure on Vladimir Putin. Uh, we're watching protests within Russia, and he's jailing thousands of people over those protests, but it's showing a much weaker um, Vladimir Putin than I think that people expected and a much stronger Ukraine than people expected. I think President Zelensky is, is the new model for what people would love to see in world leaders. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we're going to keep watching this, but we were told this wasn't a slam dunk for Vladimir Putin, but we didn't know how much of a slam dunk this wasn't for him. Uh, the Ukrainians have been much more 
um, steadfast in their opposition. Okay, well, let's pick up some phone calls here on the Tom Hartman program. Abby in La Crosse, Wisconsin, you are on the air. Good morning, gentlemen. My question is about the January 6th investigation. Given that Congress has been piling up mountains of evidence, hundreds and hundreds of interviews and so forth, and the Justice Department is doing their own investigation, can they share evidence with each other? Is it a quick and easy process that's Republican proof? That's it. Thanks. Thanks, Abby. Republican yeah, proof. Yeah, I, I, think, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, we have a lot of information, and I think they're getting it prepared to be able to present in totality because that's much better than seeing all the pieces, like a puzzle, right? Uh, one little piece of the puzzle doesn't tell you much. Seeing it complete means a whole lot more. And I think the Department of Justice can then use that information um, that we've collected. So this is really important. There's a reason why the Republicans didn't want to participate, except for two Republicans in all the House. And I think, you know, hopefully, if anyone's willing to have their eyes wide open and look at it, uh, there'll be a lot for people to see. Yeah. And Meredith in Los Angeles, you are on the air with Representative Pocan. Great. Thank you. I'm a first-time caller getting to the question. Um, We know that Congress is pretty dysfunctional. I'm an immigration defense attorney, and one suggestion for the House would be to circulate a letter favoring temporary protected status for Central America, and in particular Guatemala. And I think that would help uh, with an infusion of remittances to bring about more stability in Central America. I know there's a lot going on in the world, but that's something very concrete. And just in general, Congressman, we need to really pressure the Biden administration to step up more to do more immigration, uh, not reform, but just to really bring about some change, because obviously Congress is not going to do anything. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. Yeah, uh, Meredith, you're right, right? Uh, you know, when I first came to Congress now five terms ago, there was a bipartisan bill that wasn't perfect, but it, it, it would have moved forward uh, a pathway to citizenship, as well as some additional protections at the border. Got nearly 70 votes in the Senate. John Boehner wouldn't take it up since then. Since Donald Trump, certainly there's no reasonable conversation on immigration in Congress. Uh, I think in the beginning of the Biden administration, you know, those agencies were devastated that dealt uh, with the border. It was all under Donald Trump's vision of what's going on. But a year later now, we should be uh, at a point that we can have a different path forward. And I, I think it's not just Guatemala, but there may be a couple other countries as well in Central America. What you're suggesting may be necessary. Morris in Long Beach, California. You are on the air with Representative Pocan. Hey, good morning, gentlemen, and good morning to everyone else within the sound of my voice. Uh, Congressman, if we're going to take off our partisan hats, uh, I can agree with the sanctions that are being employed currently against Mr. Putin regarding what's going on in Ukraine. But why weren't sanctions issued against George Bush when he went into Iraq? Uh, Why aren't sanctions issued against the Saudi Arabians because of what they're doing in Yemen? Why aren't sanctions issued against the Israelis for what they're doing in Palestine? i like, where do we draw the line? But the question is, do you think that it's fair that Bush not be sanctioned, but Putin be sanctioned? Thank you. Appreciate the time. The time. Yeah, Morris, no offense, but Bush was a long time ago. I wasn't here. And I think we're better focusing on some of the other points you did bring up. Um, you know, the mainstream media is covering this, but like we talked about earlier, what about Israel and Palestine? What about Yemen? What about some of the other spots uh, on the globe that uh, equally deserve, I think, uh, attention on a regular basis and don't get it. And, and that's a very valid point. Um, right now, though, uh, the sanctions are, I think, the best path forward in strengthening the sanctions uh, to really uh, make Putin feel the pressure. I, I think they're working right now. And I, I again, credit to many people in Russia standing up to them at their own risk and to the Ukrainian people who've done an amazing job in standing up uh, for themselves. I, I think at the end of the day, this may be a, 
realignment in how people look at uh, much of the global order. Jim in Moose Lake, Minnesota. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind today? I'd like to know, is the transcript of the Zelensky-Trump telephone call ever going to be released? What's online now is a memorandum, and it is not complete. Hmm. Yeah, Jim, I don't know. I, uh, I really don't have an answer to that. That would be a fascinating historical document. It would be. Right now, it would be <laughs> really very would. fascinating. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Alex in Toronto, Canada. You're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hello, Mr. Pocan. I'm wondering why everything that we've been hearing on the media about this eight-year war has only been focusing on what's been going on the last three weeks since Russia invaded. The U.S. has had a lot of support for fringe groups like the nationalist right sector, Svoboda, other groups that have now risen to power, yet we don't seem to be getting any of this on mainstream media. Is this intentional? And if so, why? Yeah, Alex, I mean, mainstream media um, does whatever the shiny object is and whatever is going to help sell commercials for detergent, right? We have to remember that. And if you're relying on just that for the information, you're going to get things that are just uh, in the most awareness, and they, they don't really do thorough conversations like you get on Tom's program and other programs. So part of it is just the reality of what mainstream media is, 22 minutes uh, that are there to deliver commercials and, uh, you know, not necessarily take things in depth and go back in time like you might like. Uh, but certainly right now they're covering, I think, Ukraine uh, very uh, in depth at this very moment, uh, but that's what you're getting and that's all you're getting. Carol in Minneapolis. Carol, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you. Without voting rights, we have no democracy. And I would like Congressman Pocan to encourage Chuck Schumer to take another vote on voting rights. President Zelensky is risking his life, and all the Ukrainians are risking their lives to defend democracy. And I would like everyone to be on the record as to whether or not they support democracy here at home. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, Carol, I hear you. I, you know, there's a lot of things I wish the Senate would modernize, including many of their rules, from blue slips on judges to the filibuster, this arcane procedure that's blocking everything. Um, if they don't, uh, we're not going to get things done, and that's not good for this country. So, you know, I agree. I wish they would uh, get this done in every way possible. The problem is uh, because of a couple members, they're not doing everything possible, and that's unacceptable. Is it by a couple members, are you talking about a couple of Democrats in the Senate or, or something larger? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Republicans <laughs> aren't going to work on anything, right? I right. mean, we understand that. I and mean, in the world of Donald Trump, they're so afraid of him uh, that does this please their leader because uh, he still is the leader in exile. Uh, that they won't do anything. But, you know, even within our own party, we've got some people that have to uh, stand up more. And, you know, I think that means more pressure from, from leadership. I truly don't understand the Senate, uh, Tom. The rules there are so arcane uh, that at some point they'll break. I just wish that, you know, we would be doing it rather than them. Well, spe speaking of the Senate, I understand you've been trying to uh, reach out to Ron, Senator Ron Johnson, the senator from Wisconsin. Did I did I misunderstand a, a news story or a tweet that I saw flying by a day or so ago? No, you know, Ron Johnson um, is, is unique among senators in many ways. You know, he was kind of Donald Trump before Donald Trump uh, was president, right? Very reactionary, you know, with these very extreme ideas. 
I was trying to reach out to him a couple of weeks ago about two things. One, uh, he, uh, put, he wouldn't put a blue slip in for my brother, for a federal judge. He's the first senator to do that. I'm someone that he recommended. He recommended a list of four names, including my brother's name, and now uh, he's flip-flopped. Uh, the only thing different is he's announced uh, for re-election, and apparently some of his base may not like uh, someone who, um, the only thing we can guess is that he's married to a man, and that's an issue. So, you know, we've got a problem. But I also wanted to talk to the senator about a provision that he had promised he would help us get money for a building on campus when Donald Trump was president and Secretary Purdue was visiting my district. Ron Johnson and I did a tour of a building. He never lifted a finger to help us. Tammy Baldwin and I got uh, some community-directed funding for this building. And I just wanted to make sure he didn't screw it up because he's so good at screwing things up. So I was kind of reaching out to say, look, we got the funding. Please don't do anything to screw it up. And uh, he wouldn't return the call because he's so extreme. He won't even talk to members of his delegation. I even know Republicans that can't get calls back from him. So, you know, uh, we'll deal with it in November. It's just embarrassing that Wisconsin has got someone who's such a poor U.S. senator. We need two U.S. senators like every other state. Tammy Baldwin's doing all the heavy lifting right now. Well, maybe he's busy planning his uh, next Fourth of July trip to Moscow. It is interesting uh, choices he makes, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. Fair and only slightly unbalanced. Tom Harbin here with you. We'll be right back with Congressman Mark Pocan. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Bill in Sierra Blanca, Texas. Hey, Bill, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Thank you, Tom and Congressman Pocan. I'm a big fan of, of the Progressive Caucus, and I donate regularly to Justice Democrats and other individuals. But my question is about messaging, and in your view, Congressman Pocan, you know, Democrats, what I see is, very briefly, uh, they need to, I, I think they need to raise the bar to talk more about des the destination our country's headed towards and also talk more about who's standing in the way and you know who that is in the Democratic Party. And and so I, I just really believe that Biden and the Democratic Party in, in Congress need a wholesale revamp of their entire communications, political and strategy team. If we don't start playing hardball 
like Trump and, and the Republican parties have been so effectively doing, we're, we're going to lose. So what do you think about that? Yeah, Bill, so I think, you know, a big part of it is what we've done, which is the American Rescue Plan last year, $1.9 trillion. An infrastructure bill we've talked about for years, uh, actually done $1.2 trillion, all real investments. And what else we have to get done, which would be a you know, big part of what was the Build Back Better agenda. Um, but one of our biggest problems right now, Bill, is, is getting people's attention. Between a COVID hangover and the talk of inflation, it's hard to break through and talk about what we've done and what we want to do. Fortunately, I'm hoping that we'll be uh, over uh, with COVID as we know it, and that helps to open up that part. But, you know, inflation is still a real issue. And, you know, one of the things I wish we would do it would be much more aggressive going after big oil. I think the profiteering uh, has been out of control uh, since last March when, if you remember, they had the bad weather that they weren't ready for in winter and some refineries were closed down. Prices have been high since then, and now they're going up because of Ukraine. And yet right now we're watching the price uh, per barrel go down, but we're not seeing it necessarily go down uh, at the pumps. Uh, I think it's time for the White House to be real aggressive and taking on uh, some of these oil companies that are taking advantage of people. And we need to t- show that we're really fighting for the average American. I think if we do that, uh, that will help us to then be able to talk about what we've done and what we have to do. And I think you are right. That's a big, important part of the conversation. Liz in Pomona Park, Florida, you're on the air with Congress in Pocan. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm really concerned about members of Congress being allowed to continue to spread the big lie. They know that Trump did not win, and yet they continue to pretend that he did and hide behind free speech to do so. This isn't free speech. This is misleading the public. It is lying, and they should not be allowed to stay in Congress without some form of punishment. I would like to know what can be done to keep our Congress people from lying about the election. Yeah, Liz, I I think what we need is the Republican Party to gain a spine. Uh, Right now, it's not a political party. It's a cult of one person, Donald Trump. And Republicans are afraid of him because in primaries, he can endorse against them. And therefore, they all roll over no matter what he says. Uh, with maybe the exception of two people that I can think of right now in the House of Representatives. That's the biggest problem. I mean, this is a group think uh, Kevin McCarthy doesn't stand up at all, and uh, we need to get uh, more Republicans to stand up for their country over their party, but, you know, the, the cult-like behavior of it doesn't really make it a political party. That, that's the biggest problem we're facing. Um, I agree, you know, they're, they're lying about what they're saying. It's a little hard, uh, you know, to have a direct control over it. When people have been extremely uh, out there, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, we've been able to deal with committee assignments. But, you know, look how many of them uh, dive in that really deep end of that crazy pool. It's really disheartening. But, you know, what we need are more Republicans to stand up for their country. Mateo, uh, listening on our oldest affiliate, KTRC, in Espanola, New Mexico. Uh, Actually, KTRC is in Santa Fe. But, Mateo, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, Congressman Pocan, I just wanted to appeal to you, if you haven't already uh, signed on to a Dear Colleague letter that was circulating uh, regarding Leonard Peltier. 
Um, I'm not sure if you're aware of his case, but he's a 78-year-old Native American who was uh, falsely charged with the death of two FBI agents. Do you know the situation? Yeah, no, I know the situation. I'm not aware of a letter a few weeks back at... um, uh, a friend actually brought this up that, you know, what his health concerns, and we actually uh, tweeted out a couple times on his behalf that he should be uh, pardoned and uh, released. But if there's a letter, I'll certainly look for it. Okay. Well, you know, I I haven't been in D.C. for a while, so the Dear Colleague letter was sent, and I'm not sure if you can just add on to it at any time, but if you could do anything to help bring awareness to his case and bring it up to the president, yeah. it's really simple for him to do. And it's vital that he does it to, you know, rectify the injustice. Thank you, Mateo. Yeah, a former uh, resident of my district who now is a professor, uh, Ben Mansky, brought it up to me. And uh, I think within the week we had a couple tweets out there and encouraged the president to just deal with it, uh, which is a pardon. Malcolm in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. Malcolm, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Good morning, gentlemen. My question is, what on God's green goodness can we do to hold Clarence Thomas accountable or at least recluse himself from his wife's uh, situation. And lastly, if, if the government went after politicians with the same intensity as whistleblowers and journalists, we might be in a better spot. But there has to be some accountability in terms of maybe impeaching him. Thank you. And that's it. I'll take my question off there. Yeah, Malcolm, I'll tell you, let me give it to you a little bit more globally. I mean, I think, you know, accountability in general, whether it be Congress or the Supreme Court, we do need to do more in our our self-policing. I think a great example, and I know this isn't directly to your question, and I'm going to apologize in advance, but is the issue of uh, allowing members of Congress, and for that matter, uh, the Supreme Court, be able to buy uh, individual stock. You know, um, I get a lot of inside information from companies and individuals just in my role as a member of Congress. And if I were to, to use that to buy stock, that would certainly be unfair and against the rules that everyone else in the country has to abide by. And I think, you know, it would be um, smart for us to look at things like that, whether it be for the Supreme Court or ourselves, to have higher standards. And uh, right now we don't have that uh, moving forward as quickly as many of us would like. So I see what you're saying around the Supreme Court. I would say that's true of Congress. Uh, we have to have standards that people know Uh, What we're doing is in the best interest because it's in the best interest and not just in the best interest of our pocketbooks. Bob in Chicago, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Yeah, hi, Tom. Hello, uh, uh, Congressman. Um, I'm just calling to check. Somebody mentioned immigration, and uh, I'm calling to check that you all are aware of all the positive things that President Biden has already done for immigrants. Um, I'm an immigration attorney. So I can go through a couple of them real quick if you want. Um, I don't think he gets enough credit. Uh, I agree, by the way, TPS for Central Americans. The president has issued TPS for South Sudan, Haiti, Ukraine uh, most recently, and many other countries. Um, Really important is DACA. People know about DACA. And DACA would not exist anymore if Joe Biden weren't president. Because it's a, a bit of a long story. But um, Trump did everything he could to get rid of it. We stopped him in the courts. We're still fighting it out in the courts. But DACA still exists for 700,000 people who aren't so young anymore, some of them. (laughs) And uh, one thing that really is not mentioned much in the public is uh, the prosecutorial discretion orders, 
that Biden has uh, implemented, and that's helped. That's already dismissing thousands upon thousands. We don't have a number yet because they've just started dismissing them. Dismissing, it'll probably be hundreds of thousands of cases from deportation court of people who are not dangerous, who don't have any kind of bad criminal record. Trump said everyone's a priority. That was his policy. Everyone's a priority for deportation. So even even the uh, cook or the dishwasher, you know, who's been here 30 years or 20 years or whatever and has five U.S. citizen kids, they were deporting them with all the force they could. Um, I can go on and on. I don't want to take your whole show, Tom. <laughs> but, you know, the unaccompanied minors, are, have, he let them come in. He stopped MPP, the, which is the uh, migrant protection protocols, which created those refugee camps on the other side of the border. And then the Republicans fought back in the court and the Fifth Circuit ordered the Biden administration to re, reinsert it. That's going to the Supreme Court because he's still fighting to stop that. He's reuniting the families of the children that were, I call it kidnapping, the children who were taken from both parents by, by uh, Trump, which we all heard about that. He has a whole commission that's been reuniting those families. It's been very difficult to do. There's a public charge rule that Trump uh, imposed, which essentially said, if you're not well off, you can't come in. <laughs> that was my thing. I just wanted to to say, you know, for the record, the people should know it. And and I'm not sure if you uh, are aware that I hear so much criticism of Biden on immigration, and it's absolutely and completely undeserved. And I, I wonder if you share that view. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, Bob, first of all, thank you for that, because you're right. There are a number of things. I guess the lens I look at it is twofold. One, there's more we would like to get done, and we've been trying to get done, especially as a progressive caucus. So we're going to continue to push the administration, but he has done many things, and this is going to cause even greater problems. Andy in Lakewood, Ohio, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. Hello, Tom. Uh, Hello, Congressman. Hey. as we all know, the gasoline prices are about five five bucks a gallon around here in Ohio, and maybe about eight in California, nine. I just want to know, what are you guys going to do uh, about electric cars? Why don't you, the Democrats are not out there all the time talking about uh, producing more electric cars, more clean energy? Perhaps get some of those plants that they're shut down and turn them into electric cars, making electric cars, and make a cheap electric car where everybody can afford it. I can't afford a Tesla. It's about $70,000. So I want to know what are you guys are going to do about that. And I want to know what do you don't tell me what it needs to be done. I want you to hear from you. What are you going to do about that? Promote more electric cars and more clean energy. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. So the good news, Andy, is we've already done a bunch uh, in the infrastructure bill. Uh, 500,000 um, uh, charging stations across the country uh, are going to be um, invested in. Uh, we also, um, in the Competes Act, are trying to get uh, the production of computer chips because in the average car, it was 1,000 computer chips and the electric vehicle, 2,000, working on that to help uh, bring that production back to the United States. There was more in the Build Back Better bill that we still don't have done. I'll admit that. But uh, there are real initiatives under the Biden administration with the Democrats in control to, to address this issue. And I know members from Michigan and other states uh, who deal very directly with the auto industry are in, in very, very active conversations in trying to get that uh, that timeline sped up as much as possible. So the good news, Andy, is a bunch of things have happened, uh, but you're right, we need to do more and Build Back Better would help us. Betsy in Essex, Vermont. Betsy, you're on the air with Representative Pocan. 
thank you for taking my call, Tom, and good afternoon, Congressman. I want to know why we're not pressuring some of these um, congressmen from Republican side and senators that are not going to run. They have nothing to lose about with Trump. They can do what they want. Why aren't we smooching them and getting them to see the light and come and do the right thing for America? Thank you very much. Yeah, Betsy, here's what I've found. People who are officially out of office, like in Wisconsin, Tom Petri and Reed Ribble, who left Congress, were good people when they were here, uh, you know, have spoke out against Donald Trump. If you're still in office and you're not running, you're still afraid of your town hall or, you know, your Republican base because Donald Trump will go after you while you're still in office. It's harder to get that population than it is the former uh, elected, because I think they've got a little more ability to show that spine that the rest of the Republican Party needs. Isn't it also that uh, a lot of these people are looking at multi-million dollar a year jobs when they leave, and if they keep singing the right-wing tune, they'll, you know, those jobs won't be in jeopardy? For, for many, but honestly, for many, Tom, they're afraid of their constituents that's, uh, in the Republican best. Party that day. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. We just have uh, 30 seconds, Congressman. Uh, thoughts on the coming week, what we should be looking at, and how we can most effectively direct our efforts? You know, I think we got to continue to look at what we can do to help in Ukraine um, short of going into war. And I think that's really important. You know, the, the fly zone sounds good, but someone has to enforce that. And if we enforce that, that puts us more directly involved. So we got to continue sanctions. So be aware of what's going on there and be outspoken and People need to reach out to us on a regular basis and be heard. There you go. Congressman Mark Pocan. Thank you so much for dropping by, Congressman. Absolutely. Thank you. You can find his website at pocan.house.gov. You can tweet him at rec Mark Pocan. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And uh, welcome back. So, uh, Coke Industries. Now, yesterday, uh, Judd Lagom over on his uh, newsletter had said that there's one big company that's refusing to pull out of Russia, Coke Industries. In fact, there's a piece about it on the front page of the Washington Post today now. And I think uh, Judd has largely driven this process. Judd's been a guest on our program a number of times. I, uh, we tried to reach out to him to have him on uh, yesterday or today, but apparently wasn't around. But um, there is one company, that he notes, that has refused to pull out of Russia and continues operations and the distribution of its products there, Coke Industries. They've got a couple of different companies. One is called Guardian. Uh, they make, uh, it's a, uh, they just added a new jumbo laminated glass production line in Russia. It's in Rostov, Russia, near the border with Ukraine. Uh, they produce high performance, high efficiency, climate guard, residential, and sun guard commercial glass products for construction of homes, offices, retail, healthcare, and other facilities. They can make 900 tons of glass a day. Another Coke subsidiary, Judd Legum writes, uh, electronics components manufacturer Molex continues to distribute its products 
to third-party distributors in Russia. Molex has said it has no intention of suspending its business in Russia. And another company is called Coke Engineered Solutions that's doing business in Russia. So, you know, uh, Judd pointed this out yesterday. Uh, after it, the story went, you know, viral, and the Washington Post started calling up Coke Industries to say, well, what's going on? Uh, yesterday afternoon, Coke Industries finally spoke. They released a public statement from their COO, Dave Robertson. He said, quote, Coke company Guardian Industries operates two glass manufacturing facilities in Russia that employ about 600 people. Uh, we have no other physical assets in Russia and outside of Guardian employ 15 individuals in the country. While Guardian's business in Russia is a very small part of Coke, we will not walk away from our employees there or hand over these manufacturing facilities to the Russian government so it can operate and benefit from them, which is what the Wall Street Journal has reported they would do. Doing so would only put our employees there at greater risk and do more harm than good. So, you know, which is all, as, as Judd Legum says, this is an extraordinary public statement. Coke Industries is attempting to argue that continuing to operate in Russia is in the best interest of Ukraine and the Russian people. Right. Well, I think that, you know, the bottom line here is, uh, you know, Coke Industries is a for-profit, it's the largest private company in America. It's a for-profit operation. Um, and they're just saying, you know, we're going to keep making profits. Um, scratching my head here about uh, the, the uh, uber patriotism of all these right-wing organizations that have been paid for with profits from Coke Industries that is, that is now saying, no, we're not going to leave Russia. Hey, tough luck, guys. James in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, James, thanks for listening to KBCS. What's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for all the hard work that you do. I wanted to weigh in on uh, the brave Mr. Zelensky, and I think that uh, we should uh, encourage uh, as much as we can him and all the public officials to get all their families and themselves out of the Ukraine to undisclosed locations because Putin has a nice hot guerrilla war going on that's just starting to warm up, and, and their public officials are going to be trophies. They're going to be targets. Oh, they already are. Away. I mean, they've, they've stopped right, two right. specific exactly. groups of Chechen assassins, two assassin squads that went into Kiev looking for, uh, for Zelensky and his family. And they, they caught them both. But, uh, you know, I, I get how dangerous it is. But he's, he's playing the, the captain of the ship who's going to go down, you know, who's going to stand on the bridge until the last moment. He is not leaving. And I, I have, you know, so much respect for that. I don't, I don't think, frankly, I would have that kind of courage. Uh, exactly. And uh, that's what I'm afraid of. And I think there, it could be more effective for his fighters, his guerrilla fighters, if he were n not available as a trophy. For, I don't know. People the, are still right. talking about Che Guevara. I mean, you know, sometimes martyrs, right. are, exactly. you know, can inspire yeah. a whole nation. Yeah, Tom, I'm an old ASA guy. I left that agency in 71, and I, I watched everything that was happening. And, and one of the things about guerrilla warfare, Tom, is you've got your trophies, and and, and I think that he's in the way of his fighters. Uh, and maybe not right now, but that's going to be the case if it continues. And, yeah. and I think he could be more effective leading from outside. Along with all his uh, public officials, they're all going to be, believe me, they're all going to be trophies. They're going to be... Uh, 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 hard to defend, and it, his fighters are, are going to be uh, more effective without them in the country. 
Well, you're, you're in a way echoing what Marjorie Taylor Greene was saying yesterday, which is why, you know, he should just give up. He should just surrender. You know, uh, maybe the Russians will treat him nicely. I, I, I'm not quoting her verbatim, but it's the essence of what she was saying. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not going there, James. I, I, I realize, you know, that's also the official position of Russia. Why don't you guys just give up? Come on, we're much bigger than you. We're going to kick your ass. But the fact is, right now, Russia's stalled out. I, you know, they, they've lost 10% of the military that they sent, and the U.S. is sending in weapons and has already delivered weapons that are taking out Russian tanks and whatnot. It's looking increasingly to me like Putin is either going to have to sue for peace, and I predict that's going to happen in the next couple of days, or he's going to drop, he's going to use tactical, or yes, yeah, tactical nuclear weapons. Um, you know, he's, he's going to use some battlefield nukes and, and try to take out Kiev or something like that, which I, I'm... I'm not thinking he has that he's willing to do. I don't think he's willing to to commit national and personal suicide at that level. Right. And I agree. I'm just saying I'm concerned about the public officials like the mayor that was kidnapped already. And I'm sure they kidnapped him back. You know, the, 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 yeah. the, the, the Ukrainian soldiers, you know, that, kid, that mayor got kidnapped and they went in and they freed him. This is, I mean, the Russians are suffering terrible morale right now, James. They are, I mean, it's just, it's a crisis for Russia. You've got soldiers who are phoning home saying it's terrible and, um, you know, I had no idea. And, and it's starting to seep out in Russia. Now, again, as I, as I pointed out yesterday, it took America three years to figure out that George Bush, the average American, to figure out that George Bush had lied us into the war in Iraq. It's probably going to take more than a few weeks for Russians to figure this out. But it'll come. Karen. Hey, Karen, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Um, I'm, I'm not quite understanding, but... If the Republicans want to whine and rage about gas prices at the pump, why don't they pass a law of no more exports? Natural gas is not something that affects the pump price, I don't think. But how much um, uh, does... Uh, I think United Biden States should advocate for this. ...deal with the OPEC prices. If we're producing, how does that affect OPEC prices? Right. Um, I, we're not a member of OPEC, I don't believe. But, right. But, the, uh, but, you know, there was this big moment back in 2020, in April of 2020. Uh, gas prices were, you know, right. hit a floor. And oil prices were so low that you had uh, oil uh, refineries that had ordered oil in advance. You know, they bought oil futures who were paying not to have the oil delivered to them because they had no place uh, to store it. So the price uh, of oil was Louisiana. Be- right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the price of oil was below zero in April of 2020, uh, effectively right. in many parts of the United States. So so into this steps Donald Trump, Vladimir Putin, and Sheikh Mohammed bin Salman of, of Saudi Arabia. And the, uh, the first thing that they did was blow up the, uh, the Iran nuclear deal. Actually, Trump had done that two years earlier in 2018. He blew up the Iran nuclear deal. That took three million barrels a day off the, off the table of, of okay. worldwide production out of the hunt, roughly 100 million, dollar, million barrels a day that the world consumes. That took okay. about 3% off the table. Then, uh, you know, at that point in time, Russia and Saudi Arabia were basically engaging in a price war. They were both trying to outproduce the other and thus driving the price of oil so low. And so Trump convinced them both, or they convinced each other, or whatever. The three of them got together and they all decided to cut production. And so thus, you know, they took 10 million barrels a day off the shelf or off the table. And we're still in that space. I agree. 
So, no, I mean, I mean, this is just as a fact. You know, the, the Russian production has been cut, the Saudi production has been cut, and they have not restored it. And, and two weeks ago, when Joe Biden called Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates to ask them to increase production, they literally refused to take his phone call because they are totally down with the GOP now. They, they right. see the Republican Party as an authoritarian party. These are authoritarian states. They like authoritarians. They don't like small-D Democrats. They don't like democracy. They don't like republics, shall we say, Republican democracy. And so they're going to do whatever they can to politically harm a Democrat in the White House, which is what's going on right now. And I think, you know, Biden just needs to be calling them out. We all need to be calling them out and, and pointing out what's actually going on. So, yes. I Karen. agree. And, and have you read Blowout by the Rachel Maddow? Uh, no, I haven't. Oh, well, please do, please do, please do. Yeah, it's, that, that it's was all about, about two years ago. Russia, uh, um, Ukraine, and oil. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'll have to check it all out. Right, thank you, thank thanks, you, dear. For thanks a lot for the tip. you do. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Ken in Tampa, Florida. Hey, Ken, thanks for listening to WMNF. What's up? All these uh, gas guzzlers converting to electric. But sooner or later we have to, don't we? I mean, I see nice car after nice car after nice car. that has got all the hoots and whistles, but uh, what are we going to do? Just scrap them? Well, you know, the average lifespan of a car in the United States, if my recol if my uh, memory serves me right, is 17 years. But that includes a lot of fleet cars that, that run longer than that, you know, like, you know, postal service vehicles and stuff like that. Yeah. So the, the actual lifespan number for, uh, you know, a passenger car is typically 11 to 15 years. If, if Again, if my recollection is serving me right. I think okay. that probably by the time you incorporated the cost of modifying the car uh, into your cost of fuel for the next few years before the car becomes you know, useless, you're probably not going to make a return on your investment that would be worth the investment. It would be, be cheaper just to buy a new electric car. And, and, yeah. the, and that sounds like bad news, but I think that cheaper electric cars are, are you know, not only are they here, I mean, you know, the Chevy Bolt, which is an all-electric car, is, is relatively inexpensive. The Nissan Leaf has been around for years. It's an inexpensive all-electric car, a couple hundred-mile range. And electric cars are cheaper to make. They're cheaper to service. They're cheaper to maintain. They perform better. You can just plug them in at home at night. You never have to, you know, worry about a gas station. The only time you need to charge them outside of home is if you're traveling a long distance. And we're, we're building out 500,000 charging stations now because of the infrastructure bill yeah. that was just passed. So, I, I, you know, my sense of it is, uh, you know, like, for example, I own a plug-in hybrid. It'll only go 30 miles on a, on a charge, and then it kicks over to gasoline. Uh, and I think that's kind of the sweet spot right now for a lot of Americans. But, you know, within a couple of years, I would think two years probably at the most, um, you know, uh, and, and our car will then be seven or eight years old. That would probably be the point at which Louise and I would be looking to, to trade in for an all-electric car. I know one of our kids did this recently, and, and uh, it's pretty remarkable what these electric cars can do. So, I'm all for it, yeah. Yeah. Ken, thanks a lot for the call. Jack in St. Louis. Jack, I have 30 seconds. What's uh, You got a quick question? Yeah, my question was, we're talking about the electric cars. Right. And they're going to build all these stations. Where does all that power come? Are they building it? It doesn't take that much power, Jack. I, I plug in my car, and it uses less power than my toaster. Uh, you know, it's amazing how efficient these things are. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. That includes you. Thanks so much. Get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon and pray for peace. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. 
For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.